You're listening to the Namely Marley podcast, episode number 51. Hey everyone, welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. I'm your host, Marley. You know, the goal of this podcast is to focus on adding a little healthy, creative, and passion-filled living to your day every day. So how are you doing? For me, it's the day after Thanksgiving, and I don't know about you, but my post-Thanksgiving day is a little bit like uh, a stupor. (laughs) I'm not much of a Black Friday shopper. I definitely don't like crowds, particularly when it comes, it's combined with shopping. So I'm not one of those people that heads out to the store uh, the day after Thanksgiving, but I am kind of in recovery from, you know, I spent a whole day cooking yesterday and eating the rest of the time. (laughs) To me, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is a day to kind of, I don't know, relax on my everyday eating guidelines, I guess I would say. I try to be pretty careful about what I eat and I try to, you know, not overeat. Let's say that for sure. Um, I don't find that I feel very comfortable when I overeat on an everyday basis. And so, but Thanksgiving is a day, right, where we all kind of agree to, to not worry about that too much. But it does mean that the day after I'm in that a little bit of a, a stupor and <laughs> not feeling as good. So actually today I'm kind of fasting. I'm not eating very much. I'm going to wait until uh, dinner tonight and just to kind of give my body a break from food and, and help me heal. Maybe it's like a way of cleansing my palate too. I don't know. But <laughs> uh, I will say the one thing that is my favorite part about Thanksgiving is this annual salad that we make that's called the vegan seven layer salad. I love that salad. It's very rich, but it's also really very flavorful. And I just find it interesting about me that, you know, one of the things that I love the most is this uh, a vegan salad of all things, but uh, it is very good. You, the recipe is on the site. You should check it out. It's just vegan seven layer salad. And uh, it's uh, something that I love that we have a little bit of leftovers. And so for sure with dinner, that's what I'm going to have tonight. <laughs> But I, I, I promise you that there is some relationship to uh, today's topic on this because uh, I do have this kind of uh, passion for salads and people sometimes will even ask me like, do you ever get sick of salads? I'm like, no, I love salads all the time. I really do. I enjoy them. I feel like in addition to... Um, you know, just kind of like they're a, a plate filler, right? They fill up space on the plate with something that, you know, makes you feel like you're eating a lot, but it's also just so good for your body. There's so many reasons why, you know, those dark green leafy vegetables are just full of all the nutrients that we need. So I really enjoy having my salads. And and so it's really interesting for me to get to talk to today's guest, who is Rob Lang. He is founder of Farm One. He also has his own podcast called uh, Plant Gourmet that he... Uh, talks on from time to time. But um, Farm One is an indoor artificially lit hydroponic farm, and it's located right in the middle of uh, Manhattan. Isn't that interesting? So, you know, it's not a place where you'd think of a farm growing. Rob actually talks about his story as he's a more of a technical guy who loves food, and, and he radically changed his diet and, and, you know, he has an emphasis on fresh, whole plant-based foods. But what's interesting is that, you know, he talks about his, his diet as, you know, he had some pretty bad eating habits and then he found himself, he had gained weight and, you know, he's working really hard and traveling and just feeling bad and getting sick all the time. And so he realized something had to be done and he read the book, uh, Eat to Live by Joel Fuhrman. I, I always say Fuhrman, but I think it's Fuhrman. Um, 
anyway, he read that book. I actually have that book too. And I read that a long time ago. It's like a nutritional game changer because you read this book and you realize the way that we think about food and the way we, you know, eat, uh, thinking that we're being all you know healthy and nutritionally focused is is really all wrong. <laughs> and so I, I really love this book a lot. In fact, I go back to it several times a year and just, it's like a really good refresh. I, I don't think it's a way I eat all the time, but it is definitely a way I like to go back to in a, as a kind of foundational way of eating. It's very plant focused. And, and so that's how Rob found himself eating. And, and I think what basically what I got from the conversation is that he combined his love of technology with his love of plant-based eating. And he actually went to a, a raw culinary school and learned a lot about combining flavors and, and herbs and things like that. And so that's how, uh, you know, you've got the technology related to how you can grow plants indoors. And that's what Farm One does. It's basically using LED lights and hydroponics, which is basically, you know, uh, plants being grown without uh, soil in a nutrient dense uh, liquid, I guess, or water. And, and, and then from that, they, they grow all kinds of herbs. And, and right now they sell mostly to high end. It's more, you know, it's not probably for the everyday consumer. However, um, that's where Rob and I talk about what, you know, as, as they're waiting for the technology to improve in cost so that they can produce these kinds of things for the everyday uh, consumer. Um, in the meantime, how can you learn and listen to Rob and apply this to your everyday life? So for, for me, for example, I have my herbs and I, you know, I didn't always grow herbs, but sometime in the last 10 years, I guess I started, you know, like with basil, like we all do, right? <laughs> and I have a cousin who's a master gardener and she, um, you know, has taken me to her, her herb days that they have. And they're just, it's just awesome to go pick out all these lovely herbs. I mean, basil is a great example. Like, you know, you go to the store and mostly you can find one form of basil, but uh, you go to a a master gardener event and there's probably like 20 different kinds of herbs uh, a basil alone uh, seriously there's all kinds of basil out there the all different kinds of flavors and uh, so that kind of got me interested in herbs and I I started to grow them I have them in pots so that I can grow them they get big and gorgeous in the summer. And then I bring them inside and where they barely survive. <laughs> but I'm really excited after listening to Rob and talking with him that I can, I can get these LED grow lights as well. And who knows, maybe my herbs can look as beautiful all year round. So I'm really excited. I think there's just some ways that, um, you know, we can um, use what he's doing on a, a larger scale and, and produce some of that indoors. So for example, I'm Addie lives in an apartment and we're looking at uh, creating an herb garden for her as well, where it's, you know, growing on the wall and it's got the LED lights and, um, and some herbs that grow on, on little shelves. So I think whatever we can do to, you know, really be in touch with, you know, we used to be so involved. I mean, can you imagine, think about your grandparents, they were probably having their own gardens and things like that. I know that that's the case for me. My, my uncle was a, a big farmer. And I think the majority of kids nowadays, though, don't get to see that as much. And as busy as we are, and as hard it is to think about growing your own uh, plants and herbs, if you think about the health benefits, and then the educational benefits for your children, too, to see plants growing and to see, you know, the 
the impacts. I mean, I, I feel like last week I was talking about how we're all makers and that was based on the book by Elizabeth Gilbert, Big Magic, and and how she points out that we're makers. And I talked about how I went to museums and it's true that we, you know, we make utensils, we make pots and and pitchers and things like that and we turn them into art and i feel like the same thing is true when it comes to farming we are gatherers and rob even talks about this we are we are gatherers and i actually over the summer i was able to go blueberry picking and i was surprised to feel like this inner gatherer inside of me came out and i think actually there's a big connection between hunting and gathering too because i was hunting for the best blueberries i could find to to gather them into my little basket. Um, that was a big connection for me. And I think that that's something that we should have in our lives more often. So even if you don't grow your own food, if you can go to a community garden or go to you know places where you can pick some of your own produce, I do think it makes a big difference. And farmers markets are a great part of that as well, where you're supporting farmers who are doing that work and and you can uh, pick fruits and vegetables that are fresh and 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 have them for your meals. I think it does make a big difference. As you can tell, I really enjoyed this conversation today. I really, you know, we kind of geeked out on herbs and um, the things that you can do to make your meals just look gorgeous and taste delicious on the plate. Uh, It just really does make a big difference. So I'm really excited to be sharing uh, this episode with you today. So let's get straight to it. Here's today's feature interview with Rob Lang. Hey everyone, I'm happy to have Rob Lang. He's founder of Farm One and he's also an occasional podcaster at Plant Gourmet and he's on the show today. Hey Rob, welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. Hey, great to be here. Well, I'm really glad that you've joined me today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about today's topic on the future of farming. But first, I thought it might help everybody to have a little bit of background information about you. Can you talk about what caused you to start Farm One? Yeah, absolutely. So I've had a bit of a uh, all over the place career. I kind of started out as a designer, I ended up working in startups. Um, I started my own company before Farm One that was actually in Japan, and that was a translation technology company, so completely different. Uh, but after I left that company, I really got interested in ingredients and had the chance to study plant-based cuisine. I did a lot of time at uh, Matthew Kenny, for instance. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and so I was in Thailand, I was in LA, and I had the chance to go to all these farmers markets and kind of discover a lot of ingredients that I'd never seen before. You know, uh, sometimes if you go to the farmers market, you might find something like papalo, uh, which is a Mexican herb, uh, and it has this sort of cilantro-like freshness to it. Um, but it, you'll see it one day and then you'll go back the next week and it won't be there. It's gone. <laughs> um, it's gone, right? And I was kind of excited about that produce, but also excited about maybe the opportunity to grow that kind of thing in the middle of the city. And I had seen a lot of kind of news and internet articles about people growing produce hydroponically and often using LED lights as a new technology, as a way of growing indoors. And I thought, hey, maybe I can combine those two things and potentially start a company that grows rare product in the middle of the city year round uh, using hydroponics and LED lights. And so that was about 18 months, two years ago that I was working on that idea. I moved to New York City. I found uh, someone with hydroponics experience, which was, you know, something I lacked. Um, yeah. And, you know, decided to get going. And yeah, that was at the beginning of 2016. 
by April 2016, we had uh, started our first little prototype farm, uh, which is inside the Institute of Culinary Education, which is downtown Manhattan, just just by the old World Trade Center site. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we've been running um, for now since April last year. And as of just a few weeks ago, we've completed our second farm, which is in Tribeca, another neighborhood of Manhattan. And that is in partnership with a restaurant there. And it's about 1,200 square foot. So not a huge farm still, but for us, a big step up from what we had before. So we've been working on this for just just over a year and a half now. Um, But yeah, it's been a very exciting beginning and like a brand new thing for me. Ah, it sounds very exciting. I can't wait to talk with you about it more. I wanted to tell you a story about the farmer's market because, you know, we have a really good one here in Kansas City. Yeah. And I was there. And, you know, you talked about the finding and discovering new things. There was uh, people selling. Have you, do you know what elephant ears are? Those. I don't actually of, know that. I probably yeah. should. What is it? It's a decorative plant here in yeah. Missouri. People plant it and, and it just, it has these great big, huge leaves. And, and I think that's where it gets the name elephant ear. Okay. And, and then, and, and then these people were buying it, just the stock, and I, I could not believe, and they were mostly Asian, the people who were selling it, and this woman came up, oh. um, she was Asian, and, and I, I said, why are you buying this? She goes, oh, I put it in soup, it's delicious. Oh, <laughs> and that okay. was so interesting that something that we would take for granted as just this, you know, decorative plant could also be eaten. Yeah, you know what? Maybe I have seen that, like in the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, by the way. Yeah. Like if you if you ever visit New York City, that's a great place. It has a wide variety of like decorative but also culinary plants. I feel like I've seen elephants here there. It's huge leaves, right? Yes, then, huge. Yeah, huge, yeah. But I didn't know you could put it in a stock. That's pretty cool. cool. She um, was buying every last one that they had. She just loved it. That's cool. I don't, I, I mean, it, that would kind of take up our whole farm if we grew one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could just plant it outside the farm. I think it grows pretty yeah. easily. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Isn't it? I think that's kind of the thing that you could sit home in your own kitchen and, and you, you probably be fine. But if I think if you get out and go to th- something like a farmer's market, I mean, I love what you're talking about that herb that, you know, one herb is here next weekend, it's gone the next. And, yeah. you know, it's easy for me even I love to experiment in the kitchen but it's easy for me to stick with the same herbs and same right. things over and over and it's so good to just experiment no I absolutely agree and and so you know while I was learning more about cooking in general and plant-based cooking um, you know it was a great way to just discover things and experiment and I think that yeah. when we you know nowadays we get used to going to the grocery store and seeing like parsley cilantro rosemary maybe yes. sage if you're lucky oregano and that's kind of it you know and when yeah. you start to look just in the herb world there's like hundreds of them and they're all you know interesting and add different character to dishes they're relevant in different cuisines and um there's so much excitement there and so it's been like a huge privilege over the last year and a half to be able to grow a lot of these things and and discover new flavors i mean a lot of the things we'll buy seeds for we've never tasted before and so growing something out um like fennel flowers for instance you know Uh most people have never had those you buy the bulb of fennel in the store and you grow out that plant and it has these beautiful anise tiny little yellow flowers that um, have that burst of flavor. They're somewhat sweet, um, completely, it's related to the fennel bulb, but it's got this much more kind of aromatic, sweet uh, flavor and aspect to it. And it's like this thing that 99% of people um, never get to experience anymore. And, 
you know, that, that really drew me to this world and, and continues to excite me all the time. So is, are, do you eat plant-based? I do. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? Like, I think it's Saturday is going to be two years for me. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's been a cool journey as well. So with my previous company, um, you know, if anyone listening to this has done a startup or is doing a startup, it's like this thing that consumes you, you know, it's like all day, every day. And really what tends to happen is you end up eating pretty unhealthily and because you're just prioritizing the company. And I had some pretty bad dietary habits, I have to say. Um, and I, I was traveling a lot between Tokyo and San Francisco. So we had an office in both um, places and I would find that I would get sick quite a lot, you know, and mm-hmm. like get like a cold or a flu. And at that time I was, I had, I was probably about 40 pounds heavier and I was kind of putting that sickness down to just like, Oh, it just comes with the business. It's like, that's what comes with airplane travel. And I sort of one day just decided like, okay, I really want to maybe look into this and see if there's anything I could do about it. And the first thing that I read was like the Joel Furman books, like eat to live and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I kind of had, I mean, it's one of those things where before you're eating that way, it's scary to make that shift, you know, cause you're like, Oh, what? Like I <laughs> have to give up all this stuff. But I kind of, um, decided to, I do this sometimes. It's sort of a thing I do, but I decided to like brainwash myself basically yes. and go like, I'm going to read like three of these books, uh, you know, in like six days, I'm just going to be all about it and make a big shift. And I did it. And I think one of the things is, you know, you're trying to do it for certain reasons. Like I was just trying to go that way to lose weight and be healthier. Um, but the dramatic improvement in my health was like something unexpected. Like it was amazing. And in some sort of, you know, I had a couple of like minor medical conditions that were chronic and just had not, you know, got any better. And after changing my diet, just completely disappeared. And, you know, it's all these things we always say, like my allergies went away and mm-hmm. like my skin got better. And, um, I don't know. It's like amazing. So it, it's one of these things where you're like, Oh, okay. Um, this is, this is what I'm going to do now. And at that stage, that was about four years ago. I didn't go completely plant-based at that stage, but then after doing the Matthew Kenny, uh, program and learning more about how to cook that way, um, and then looking more at the ethical aspects and the environmental aspects, I kind of made that complete shift and that was just over two just uh, just under two years ago i'm Um, so intrigued by the matthew kenny program is it is it pretty nice oh it was super cool yeah Yeah. so i think i mean that company has gone through various iterations and now the education piece is called plant lab um and then there are still the restaurants and so for instance double zero in uh, new york city is a customer of ours actually at farm one uh, which uh-huh. is great. That's an awesome plant-based pizza restaurant. It's definitely not like a health food restaurant, I would say. <laughs> um, but if you want to try some amazing pizza and just beautiful side dishes, it's really cool. One of my favorite places to go. But um, the culinary program, um, I it was just such a cool and interesting and fun and kind of challenging thing. So I had left my previous company I was really unsure about what to do next. You know, it was one of these like moments in your life where you're like, I literally have no idea what I'm going to do. And I knew that I didn't want to just go into a software startup again. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something real and I was interested in food, but I didn't really know, you know, what, what I wanted to do with that. And so 
Um, I enrolled at the Matthew Kenny um, when he had it in Thailand. That facility has now changed hands, but um, yes. I did the, the course at, in Thailand, and it was like this immersive four weeks of raw plant-based high-end cuisine. And I was yeah. kind of attracted to that partly because of my design background, like the visuals of it. It's very yes. beautiful, right? Mm. You're probably familiar with it. Um, but also like the innovation and the kind of creativity in the kitchen that you're able to do as part of that course was so inspiring. It was like, oh, wow, you can make uh, nut cheese and ferment it and make a yogurt and make um, like a beautiful beet dish and yeah. – I don't know. It was just like every day. Yeah. It was like, oh wow, new techniques, new things. And it and as a thing, as a thing that will make you more confident about eating plant based, it's fantastic. You know, because it sort of completely changes the way that you think about the plate. I, I I'm sure probably, you know, you might have experienced this as well. Like if you try to go from a traditional Western diet to eating plant based you may try to just like replace the meat in the dish with something, you know, like a piece of yeah. tofu or something. Whereas I think that the most successful plant-based food does not do that. It actually just says, no, we're going to start from scratch and build a dish that's purely about plants and, and bringing those out, if you know what I mean. And yes. yeah, and that course really taught me that. And I loved it so much that I did the level two in LA and that was great because it's like above Plant Food and Wine, which is this awesome restaurant in Venice in L.A. Uh -huh. Yeah. And just met a lot of cool people there. And I think, you know, funnily enough, it's one of these things where lots of people going through those courses at a similar sort of life change, right? They're like, oh, I've been doing management consulting for 15 years. I want to <laughs> do something different. Yeah. And so you just re meet all these people who are like, oh, I'm thinking maybe I'll start a cafe or maybe... Maybe I'll do nothing actually to do with making food, but I'll, you know, be do something in food styling or eventually what I decided to do, which is actually to grow the ingredients. And so I thought it was like this very creative, exciting, um, cool time. And I still keep in touch with a lot of people from the course because you really get close because you're with these people for 30 days or more. Um, right. kind of, yeah, you know, everyone's going through all this crazy <laughs> stuff and working really hard. And yeah, I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah. Ah, it sounds pretty exciting. And, yeah. and I agree with you. I think learning how to recreate the plate rather than just like, you know, I have to have the veggie burger and French, and French fries right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, we have those, good. we have that veggie burger and French fries for sure sometimes, but it's yeah. nice to reinvent the plate a little bit. Yeah, I totally think so. And if, uh, you know, if you look at some of the people who are doing the most exciting plant-based cuisine, as, as I, as I see it, you know, Scott Weingard, who, um, is executive chef at Matthew Kenny. Um, if you look at John Fraser at Nick's in New York City, you know, the dishes that he's doing there, they're not, it really isn't like meat and two vegetables, but substituted with something else. It is, oh, it's like this actual, brand new dish that they created and yeah. often like i think some of the most successful stuff there like is really conducive to sharing as well it's like um you know a table with five or six sort of entrees appetizers on it that everyone could pull from and that's like such a cool fun way of eating uh i love it yeah have you discovered in your transition <laughs> that sounds like a weird way of saying that sorry <laughs> but have you discovered that like for me um my my whole palate changed so drastically. Like I, there were several. Uh, like I hated tomatoes, couldn't stand them. Yeah. 
most of my life. And then after a few years of being vegan, it's all of a sudden I love tomatoes and I can't stand milk. And, you know, yeah. it's just kind of yeah. crazy that way your taste buds change. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, if you had asked me a few years ago, like, oh, what don't you like? I think a lot of things on that list would be vegetables. But now, <laughs> you know, I'm like, of course, I got a whole suite of things that I will never eat again. But everything else, like all the vegetable family, I pretty much love. And um, the one thing like I still am not going to go for is like corn out of a can on a salad. That's, that's not going to make me happy, but, but apart from that, um, no, pretty much, you know, everything and, and just being excited, as you said, like to sort of rediscover vegetables and, you know, just to enjoy like a really good tomato salad, like really good heirloom tomatoes and sort of appreciate the quality of vegetables a lot more. And as we've been saying, like going to the farmer's market is a great way of doing that and just discovering the difference between like some arugula that's grown really well versus uh, something really watery that you, you know, forget instantly. And, um, well, thank yeah. you for bringing up arugula. Cause actually I did try to grow that in my own garden once. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, Honestly, I find, uh, you know, I don't do a lot of my own gardening. I do herbs mostly. I've done yeah. a little bit of kale and yeah. some things like that. Obviously, you know, um, rosemary, you know, things like that are pretty easy to grow in our farm or our little garden in Missouri. Yeah. But things like greens can be kind of tricky. They can easily turn bitter. Do you, can we start, can we do this transition into farming now? <laughs> yeah. Well, with the greens, I think, um, you know, everyone's got a different taste as well. So sometimes that bitterness can be attractive. Oh, it depends who okay. it depends who you are. You know, yeah. I'm kind of someone who, um, in the morning, I'll make a massive, really ugly green smoothie that looks like, yes. you know, looks like sludge almost. And I kind of yeah. enjoy that. Like I kind of go for that. Um, generally, with with most um, plants like the brassicas, you know, so most of your greens like kale, um, broccoli, they actually come from the same um, sort of root, and they're just uh -huh. they've been grown out for different characteristics. Um, you'll find that when plants start flowering, often they'll become a lot more bitter, um, and so by cutting them back more aggressively, you may be able to activate more of that um, sort of slightly sweeter taste. Um, but yeah, some varieties that you'll choose are definitely going to be pretty bitter. Um, I, I tend to like that. Um, but yeah, it can be, it can be a matter of choosing a particular variety, uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think the flowering, like for example, I've got some mint right now that's mm. uh, gone to flower and it is so beautiful that I can't yeah. cut it back. <laughs> Oh, but you can also use those mint flowers as well. Yes. Like, yeah, I'm sure you oh, do. Oh, the mint like, flowers? Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Like, great. I mean, they taste of mint. Um, depending on how mature the plant is, they, they can get a little bit better. But um, I'll definitely use those as a, you know, attractive kind of garnish. Yeah, you could use them in a tea as well. I mean, the, the thing with teas is you can definitely do fresh infusions, and that's a lot of fun. Um, you know, we'll do, for instance, like yarrow will grow. Um, that's great for tea. Lemon balm, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the quantities of fresh versus dried for the same flavor power can be a little bit disappointing. You need a lot of fresh herbs to get some of the same um, impact as a dried herb for tea. Um, right. but, but it's so fun and it's, it's really nice to just infuse, yeah, fresh leaves into your tea. It looks so beautiful as well with like a, 
oh, if you want to be fancy, get like a glass teapot and stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think I like the feeling. Like I, maybe I feel kind of powerful when I can just go out to my front porch and grab <laughs> some oh, leaves and throw it in my tea. It feels really good. Yeah, it's the best thing on the planet, right? It Going is. out there, just like cutting or ripping off a few leaves, and like, yes. I mean, that's the thing that I think. Um, you know, a lot of we, we've kind of lost that, and a lot yes. of people don't have access to a garden, of course. Um, but you can grow some of this stuff at home. I'm obviously immensely privileged because I have a huge <laughs> garden yeah. now that I can pick, and really like. I'm so spoiled. Like to go to the supermarket now and pick up herbs is like a last resort for me. Like something's got to go pretty wrong for me to end up there. And you know, I if I know if you grow rosemary yourself, you'll know that picking that off the fresh plant and getting oh. the oily sort of sticky aroma of that is yes, um, it's magical, right? And yeah. yeah, so being able to do that is so it's so cool and it's so like. I don't know. Everything tastes better that way. You know, fresh herbs, like ripped over, like yep. almost anything, elevate it to a next level. And yeah, I'm a I'm fan. I'm so glad obviously. you said this, Rob. <laughs> yeah. I, I really do feel passionate about the fact that I think, you know, we do, we all live bu busy lives, but, um, you know, we're, we're so far removed from the food chain. It seems like yeah. that if there's just something that you can do, I mean, even just to have, you know, a, a pot of basil that is on your back porch, I think that right. just adds so much. Oh, absolutely. And that, that, that fresh herb, you know, this is, I mean, this is some of the things that makes uh, the chefs that we work with love working with us as a farm is because we'll cut and we'll deliver within a couple of hours, right? Wow. As opposed to what you're getting from the supermarket or a lot of distributors is something that's at least a day old, if not four yep. or five, you know? Right. And that difference, because those oils, the terpenes that are in these herbs, these are the things that the plant uses as its defense against insects and against other things. Those things, they disappear into the, uh, into the air. They're volatile uh, chemical compounds, you know? And so if you cut that herb um, just a few minutes before you eat, your experience is... I mean, it's almost 10 times better, you know, it's like, it's amazing how different it is. Um, so there, that's, that's the, that's the pleasure of growing something yourself, um, or getting it, you know, straight from the farmer's market where it's been cut that morning or the night before. It's great. I have a friend that once gave me a bouquet of fresh cut herbs yeah. and it was beautiful. It was probably the best bouquet I've ever received as a gift. It was, and I don't tell my husband that, <laughs> but it was beautiful. <laughs> he knows what to get you next time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, yeah. I mean, it can be more, it can also be ornamental. Like I, I agree with you that to cut them fresh and put them, you know, in your pesto, the basil leaves is mm. great, but you can also just like arrange them as almost like flowers in the, yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah, no, they're beautiful to work with. We've, we've done occasionally for little gifts, we've done little bouquets of herbs. I kind of am into the idea of doing it, it as sure. a product. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, if people enjoy them, it's, it's awesome. But, you know, yeah. like it's something we would like to do at some stage, um, especially like doing it with some of the more hardier aromatics, like using sage, like maybe yes. bergamot, uh, rosemary, um, you know, that thing, that works really well because they'll, they'll kind of stand up, but yeah, what a pleasure, right. To get all this beautiful smelling stuff. And yes, I don't know, there's something about it. Cause you know, so we, um, so at the farm, um, we also give tasting tours. Um, and it's something where, 
it just started because a lot of people were like, oh, I really want to come and visit the farm with my girlfriend or I want to bring someone along. And so we started doing tasting tours. Um, and currently that's two times a week and we're actually going to radically um, expand that. So we're going to do them almost every day of the week because there's a lot of demand. Um, people get to come along and taste like normally we're growing close to 120 different uh, herbs and flowers and microgreens on the farm. And so people get the chance to taste all of those um, as part of the tour. And they have a glass of Prosecco if they like as well. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, because you can see people tasting this stuff for the first time, tasting it fresh off the plant. The reactions are just amazing. It's the most, you know, because we'll do them at the end of the day. Sometimes you've had a long day. Sometimes the last thing I want to do is a tour, to be honest. I but bet. then... But then the people come in and they get so excited about this stuff. You know, you can see them taste these things. And, and some people, for instance, with wood sorrel, which is like, it almost looks cool. like, like clover, that, that plant. Um, yeah. a lot of, and it's got a sour, tangy taste, almost sort of like a citrus juice. Yes. Um, a lot of people come in and they taste that. And literally yesterday, someone said this to me. They said, I haven't tasted that since I was a kid. You know, and this is someone who's like 50 years old or something. And... Yeah, so they've tasted these things. They have these memories, like growing up in Germany or, um, you know, in some more country uh, sort of side of the U.S. Um, and they've tasted this thing as a kid and they haven't had access to it. And they've forgotten that taste and it kind of reactivates in their brain and it's so powerful. And um, that's always exciting. And that really perks you up again. So you're like, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is why <laughs> I do this thing. Yes. And I think, like, it's also fascinating seeing people do that because... There's something about us, I think, evolutionarily, where we are, you know, gatherers of plants and we're instinctive about mem remembering things and remembering tastes and smells. And so if you taste something and it's good or it's interesting, you visually connect that plant and it's something that we just do, you know. And yes. so because obviously as animals or whatever, you want to be able to find that plant again or you want to be able to avoid it. Um, and so we're really, really good at doing that instinctively. And so seeing people go around the farm and taste these things is sort of like, I kinda, it's kind of cool. It's kind of like this anthropology thing where, you know, you're seeing people <laughs> yes. discover around their environment and doing that with kids is great as well because we've got um, plants like the, we call it toothache plant. Um, it's called jambu in Brazil. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes people call it the buttons that it produces. Some people call them Sichuan buttons or uh, electric buttons buzz buttons what they do is it it's like a sort of it's one of these plants that looks like it's telling you not to eat it like it's a bright yellow and red button and it's the button itself is sort of made up of these tiny little florets so it's sort of got hundreds of tiny tiny flowers on it but it looks just like a sort of a um a little acorn kind of thing and you'll pop that in your mouth and chew it up and sort of 10, 20 seconds later, it starts to kind of numb your mouth. There's a sort oh of sparkly kind of pop roxy kind of thing going on. And it's, it's cool. It's fun and it's unusual and it's unexpected. And we sort of, we kind of prep people for it. We say, hey, are you ready for an unusual experience? But they'll try this thing and everyone reacts to it in a different way. You know, some people are kind of... Um, just not sure what's going on. Some people love it. They start laughing. Some people, you know, screw up their face, you know, yes. and then, but giving that to kids, for instance, is super fun as well, because it's this thing that is completely natural, right? Yes. Uh, it didn't come out of a packet, but it has the same sort of impact as giving them like a really sour gummy or something like that. 
Um, yeah. So there's things like that that are just super fun and um, you know. Makes me want. Like, do you have an Instagram account? It makes me want to follow your story if you film these people doing that. Oh, you know, we have an Instagram account at the moment. We don't expose the reactions of our. I <laughs> of think our that would be so cool to watch. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We should do a bit of that. Yeah, we do definitely have an Instagram. Our Instagram is much more, it's kind of bougie. It's like, we'll do um, uh, views of plates with our produce, like beautifully arranged on there. So uh, it's a yeah. very, it's quite a refined experience. It's not, <laughs> it's not the other end of it, which is people going crazy. But, uh, but yeah, we should definitely do a bit more of that. It's super fun. Yeah, I yeah. watched this video of, of little kids eating dark chocolate for the first time, and the, the facial expressions were pretty good. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a classic thing, right? In the kitchen yes. with, like, your mom, and then she's like, yeah, you're probably not going to like that, and then you yes. take it anyway, and then you're like, yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> little kids have unsophisticated palates to begin with, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. But now, dark chocolate, amazing. I mean, I'm sort of, you know, we're lucky enough with the farm to be, uh, one of our locations is right above this fancy grocery store and they have an amazing chocolate collection and fortunately you know a lot of the best chocolate now has no dairy in it you know yes and so i get to go in there and that's like my expensive habit you know that's it's dark week. chocolate yeah it's buying like some ridiculously overpriced chocolate that is amazing and lasts like 20 seconds before it's gone <laughs> you know <laughs> Hey, there are worse vices, right? <laughs> uh, exactly. That's what I, I, I would have to agree that dark chocolate is, is one of my vices. And so, but yeah, I, there's worse yeah. things that I could, you know, get consumed with. But, you know, I was yeah. going to ask you, it seems like we oftentimes hear uh, hunter or gatherer, but recently mm. I went blueberry pick, picking for the first time. Oh, and I felt like in some ways it's a little bit of both, right? Like, I mean, when you're picking fruits or vegetables, there's a little bit of a hunter involved and yeah. gather at the same time. Yeah, no, that's right. It's certainly in finding the best one and identifying yes. like, but it is, you know, it, it's really, it really always reminds me that it is instinctual. Like it's so, it's so obvious what is the best berry, right? And yeah. what is the best fruit? And yeah, that ability to kind of spot patterns and, and find that stuff, it's, it's embedded in us and it's really cool. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah, gathering has an aspect of hunting to it. I mean, if you look at the creative ways, um, you know, I was born in Australia, right? So if you look at the uh, creativity of the Aboriginal people in Australia, like digging for things under the soil and just knowing like where something is in an environment that looks barren to most yes. people. You know, there was this amazing program that they used to run uh, in the 80s called Bush Tucker Man. You know, bush like Tucker in Australia just means food. And it yeah. was this guy who would go around and he'd be in the middle of nowhere and he'd be like, all right, I'm going to dig up this tree. And he like digs it up and there's like a thousand sort of, you know, root vegetables underneath. Or he right. opens this thing that is poisonous on the outside and you can pull out this little um, edible nut or something on the inside. I love that stuff. And maybe that sort of informs a little bit why I'm doing this now, but... Um, yeah, that, that kind of finding food and discovering unusual plants is very interesting to me. Yeah, there's something a little bit kind of um, very basic. Like it's like you say, it's like environment or, uh, you know, we've evolved to to survive. And, and so some, this kind of touches like that very root level of, of our being, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, and it's it's exciting. And I think I always say if we go back to the plant based eating thing, you know, you can't get people to do things by telling them, no, you can't have yeah. that. You get people to do things by being excited about something, right? And I think yeah. 
one of the most exciting things about plant-based food is how colorful your plate becomes and yeah. how beautiful and attractive and fresh and um, lively it is when you compare it to, you know, someone who's like eating a steak with mushroom sauce or something where yeah, like the whole plate is like brown. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, I'm happy for my green smoothie to be kind of brown and murky, but yeah. like for something as a dish, you know, and so like the best way to make plates colorful and exciting is by using exciting, colorful ingredients. And there are so many more ingredients out there. And I think that, um, you know, urban farming, I, that's why I'm excited about it, is that I think it can combine the elements of the city that are great, like uh, the diversity of New York City is fantastic, right? It's one of the yeah. most diverse um, and interesting places on the planet. And the problem is that our food culture in cities and around the U.S., around the Western world, has kind of been narrowed because of our distribution systems and because of our supermarkets it's been narrowed and we have had access to fewer and fewer varieties as the years have gone on. And I think urban farming is a way for us to bring back that variety. You know, you go into uh, like a Mexican supermarket in New York and you will have access to various things, but that's just the Mexican supermarket and it's still limited in quantity. Um, whereas I think we should be bringing all these ingredients into you know, the farmer's markets, obviously, but the grocery stores and into the restaurants that we eat at, um, because there's, you know, there's literally hundreds of ingredients out there that, um, that are waiting to be tasted. And, you know, we only grow herbs, edible flowers, microgreens, um, occasionally we'll grow something like a tomato, but even within that little narrow band that we, we cover, you know, we've grown over 300 different products in the last year. And there's still more to come. And then if you look at, you know, just the varieties of tomatoes or the varieties of corn or different beans or um, different, even different watermelon, there's like a hundred different kinds of watermelon, right? So, yeah. you know, like that is like the breadth there is amazing. And, and I, you know, I can't wait for people to start to bring more of that back into the city. And, you know, we, what I'm doing at Farm One we're very much on the high end of the market, um, you know, because we're, we're new entrants, we're going in working with um, top-end restaurants because we have an expensive product right now. But the nice thing is the trends in terms of farming technology are making it more and more accessible to everybody. And so the equipment that we might buy right now for a few thousand dollars in a few years' time will just cost a few hundred dollars, and then after that it will get cheaper and cheaper. Um, so it will enable people to start growing in the city, growing the, the plants that they've that from their home country. You know, so if you come from Ecuador, you can grow something, or you can grow something from uh, Germany or Thailand or whatever in the middle of the city. Um, and so I feel like that that movement, that urban farming movement, is a way to empower people to to do that and give them access to amazing uh, local produce. Yeah. Yes. You know, also be a part of educating ourselves on on how you know how to do this ourselves as well, right? I assume that's totally. part of it. Is, yeah. So tell, yeah. tell me, what does urban farming mean? What What's involved with that? Yeah. So um, it could take on many forms. I think that, um, you know, for people who live in cities, often the most sort of visible type of urban farm might be like a community garden uh, in a vacant lot, for instance. Um, there's great uh, people doing that in New York City. There's also rooftop farms, and so those can be people who just found a little patch of land on the top of a roof, maybe converted it, put some planters in. Uh, those are great. 
Um, also rooftop greenhouses, for instance. So in New York City, a couple of companies do that. Uh, like Gotham Greens is one of them. They, they grow basil. They grow some leafy greens. Um, there's also one called Sky Vegetables here, which is up in the Bronx. They converted um, the top of uh, a housing unit um, as a greenhouse. Um, and so that might be one way that people have seen urban farming going on. And, you know, that kind of movement is very much about re purposing spaces that are underused, you know, or vacant lots that may be temporary, but can be used for a few years. Um, there's a great farm in New York called the North Brooklyn Farms, which is just by the Williamsburg Bridge on the uh, east side of the river. So looking across to Manhattan and they've got this amazing space. Maybe that. you see yes. that. Yeah. They, and they do these fantastic dinners like on mm. Sundays in the summertime and the sun sets and they bring out, it's all plant-based. Um, amazing. But they have a little plot of land there that actually is owned by a developer. Um, but the developer has said, Hey, you guys can have it at least for a few years uh, to have this urban farm. And so those are sort of things that people see most visibly in terms of urban farming. But now over the past years, there's been um, this sort of new kind of farming, which is what Farm One does and what, what, what's with, um, what, which uh, some other companies do, which is called indoor farming or controlled environment agriculture. Uh, and what we do is that we don't work in a greenhouse. We're completely indoors. So we're actually in a basement in one of our properties. And then we're on the third floor of like an office building um, for, the, for the other one. And we grow under LED lights. And so the kind of lights that um, a lot of cars have nowadays or on traffic lights now, um, these LED lights, which are super efficient, uh, give off very little heat, um, but they basically recreate the sun's energy for the plants. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we also grow hydroponically. And hydroponics is a technology where you grow plants in a water nutrient solution instead of soil. Uh, and that's something that's been around in various forms for about 100 years. Um, but over the past sort of 20 years or so, it's kind of rapidly increased in adoption, uh, partly because of people growing marijuana, cannabis production, um, yeah. but partly because people are interested in growing indoors and growing in city spaces um, and obviously if you can grow under LED lights and do that completely indoors, you can use a basement, you can use, um, right. you know, some room that doesn't have any sun. You can, uh, kind of use underused, uh, or unrentable spaces in cities for little farming operations. And so that's what we're trying to, that's what we're trying to do. And that's what we're seeing. And so, um, some people call that, uh, that movement vertical farming, uh, mainly because you can have multiple levels uh, for your farm. And so, uh, for us, for instance, we've got a tray on one level and then like two feet above that, we have another tray and then two feet above that, we have another tray. And so you can kind of stack these levels in this vertical form. Some, some people use the term vertical farming as well to say, oh, having like farms in a skyscraper and having that building, you know, having a lot of greenery around it. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's sort of two similar uses of that term, but we kind of use it to mean that we can grow on multiple levels. So I've got a confession to you, Rob, cause I thought vertical farming is what I've seen these plants that are upside down. That's what I thought it was. Have oh, I don't know if I've seen the upside down plants, but, uh, yeah, so we don't, we don't normally call it that, but that's fine. I mean, it's all kind of people trying to be creative, uh, yes. with urban space and obviously, because you can stack these layers vertically, you can get a lot more growing area out of a smaller space. And so, um, you know, normally we can get sort of 30 or 40% more growing area 
Um, and then there are other companies trying to do this on a pretty big scale now as well. So uh, there's a company called Plenty, um, which is in California, and they've raised about $200 million recently to build really big vertical farms. And so uh, they're going after the sort of leafy greens, uh, salad mix for the supermarket. There's another one in New York City called Aero Farms. Um, and they're kind of on a much bigger scale from what we're doing. We're very much focused on uh, yeah. kind of unusual products and interesting herbs, that kind of thing. Yeah. Could you see someone uh, also using this like the home gardener that let's say I have a, a, a big tomato plant out in my garden for the summer, instead mm. of just throwing that away at the end of the year, I could bring it inside and put an LED light on it? Yeah, absolutely. So you can totally do that kind of thing. There's a, there's a, a variety of ways of doing it. I would say nowadays there are products and systems that go from um, something that's like $5 all the way up to thousands of dollars. And oh, right. really that's, that's um, you know, depends on the size and the scale of what you're trying to do. So if you uh, wanted to get started with this kind of thing and you had a few dollars to spare and you just want to experiment, uh, there's a really cool new uh, product called Urban Leaf. And they call it like the world's smallest garden because it's this um, little... Uh, it's kind of shaped like a big fat whiteboard marker um, and you can drop it into the neck of a wine bottle or a beer bottle. And mm -hmm. so you'll take your old wine bottle, uh, you'll fill it up almost to the brim with water and then the urban leaf has a seed already in it and <laughs> already has some nutrients in it. And it's based on a system called Kratky, which was developed about 40 years ago. And the Kratky system is that as the water gets absorbed by the plant, the water level goes down and an air gap is created for the roots to get oxygen. And so you can grow a basil plant in the neck of your wine bottle uh, using this little system. It's just like five bucks. Um, I think it's really cool because it's like this way to repurpose something and you can try yeah. it really easily. It's very low maintenance. Um, I love it. And then um, on top of that, if you want to spend a bit more money, um, there's various different systems. Um, one of them is called Click and Grow, um, and that is probably the most commercialized one at the moment. It uh, is, if you imagine, maybe a shoebox size uh, box, and then it has an LED light kind of as a sort of lamp over the top. And they uh, sell these little pods where you can grow uh, maybe a basil plant or maybe a tiny little cherry tomato plant um, in a hydroponic system on your kind of tabletop. I love this. I love this uh, this whole concept of you know um, letting people learn more about farming by bringing it into their homes and and finding yeah. ways to keep it going all winter is great. Yeah, and then you know if you get more excited about it, there are bigger systems that you can buy. Um, there's a cool one called the Tower Garden, and that's sort of a circular. Uh, system. I'm trying to think what sort of size I would describe that as. Maybe like a big, uh, a very big audio speaker kind of thing. Okay. Um, and that consists of a reservoir at the bottom and that has um, a, a sort of tower going up the top and the water gets pumped up the tower and it kind of trickles down. And so you have plants arranged around it in a circle uh, pointing outwards. And that you can put outside in the sun or you can bring it inside and you can have some LED lights around it um, to, to cause things to grow. So that's quite a cool system that's been going for a while. Uh, very, very easy to use. But yeah, there's lots of products out there. 
Um, they're pretty, it's a pretty kind of exciting time right now. Lots of Kickstarters, lots of people trying new things. Uh, some of them, some of them work, some of them don't, <laughs> but like, but it's a very time of a lot of innovation and it's really, really cool. Yeah. And I think it's important to clarify that LED lights don't use a lot of energy. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, um, we normally, well, the way we do it, we're on a sort of commercial way of doing it, but literally if you buy the click and grow, uh, I'm thinking it's probably using under 10 watts, uh, yeah. maybe something like that. Whereas you remember like the light bulbs we used to have will be a hundred watts, um, yeah. just for one incandescent bulb. So yeah. LEDs are dramatically more efficient and the lifespan is dramatically longer. So in terms of sustainability, they're really, really nice. Ah, that's great. So tell me more about farm one. Is that right now you mostly service restaurants? Can individuals, uh, buy produce from you as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, as you said, primarily serve restaurants. We primarily serve high-end restaurants. Uh, we are in New York City. Uh, we only deliver to Manhattan and Brooklyn. So anything we can reach on a bike or by subway, uh, we have no trucks or anything like that. We uh, go seed to, we go from harvest to uh, delivery within a couple of hours. And so people, uh, individuals, individuals can also order from us. I have to say right now, uh, we're pretty much sold out all the time. So our website's a little bit depressing, like everything's sold out. Um, but that's because we're serving our restaurant customers. I think hopefully over the next few months, as we fill out the new farm, we may be able to offer more consumer um, products. But really, we focused on that chef market for now. We'll see about the future. And then, you know, if people who want to experience the products, like a great way is to do the tour. We also do classes. And so if you want to learn about growing indoors hydroponically, we do a very popular class called Intro to Indoor Farming. And that's run by our farm manager, David. Uh, and he's like a hydroponics expert. He loves talking about this stuff. He's a very sort of engaging and kind of um, loads and loads of knowledge about it. And so those classes are really fun. Yeah. We get a little... class? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So sorry, you got to be in New York City. Um, maybe <laughs> one day we'll trip? do. Yeah, it's worth the trip. Uh, maybe one day we'll do an online course, but, but right now it's in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, then tell me about uh, your podcast, Plant Gourmet. Yeah. So um, about a year ago, as I was starting Farm One, you know, it's one of these things where you're like, okay, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I was trying to, you know, I was just very excited. And, um, you know, what I was most excited about was uh, the quality of plant-based food that was starting to appear. And I think that, you know, historically, vegan food um, has not been viewed in the best light. I think historically, um, there's been a lot of food that was purely there for health reasons or cre created by people who had a lot of passion, but maybe not a lot of culinary experience. Um, but what we've seen over the past few years is people coming through who are immensely talented and who are doing things with plant-based cuisine that are as good or better than um, everything out in the mainstream world. And so um, that's, a, that's a movement that I'm very excited about. And so I've been interviewing uh, people who I consider to be you know, at the top end of that world. And so the first person I interviewed was Scott Weingard, as I mentioned before, uh, who works with Matthew Kenny and is responsible for the, um, the, a lot of the menus and recipes, um, at their restaurants. Um, I spoke to, 
uh, oh man, I'm blanking for a second. Um, guy from uh, Beyond Sushi. So that's a plant-based uh, sushi uh, mini chain in New York City. I love their stuff. It's very creative and colorful and cool. Um, and oh, Daphne Chang, um, who was responsible for uh, a lot of um, these particular restaurants in New York City, turning their menus plant-based and having a lot of success uh, with that. So talking to people like that, um, who are doing really interesting things with plant-based food. And I think that, um, it's something that, you know, as you know, cause you have a podcast, it's very yeah. time consuming. So, uh, I would say my recordings of those podcasts are very sporadic. And so I wouldn't want anyone to feel like they're going to get one every day. Um, <laughs> but I definitely will be doing more of that. And it's, that's been just an immense privilege as well. Like talking to chefs, Yes. and discovering how they do that, you know, how they innovate and how they try things. And I, I would say, like, if there's one big takeaway out of doing that, it's really reinforced how chefs making the best food are constantly experimenting and not afraid to make mistakes, you know? Uh, I think that, yes. you know, when you're in the kitchen at home, it's so there's so much pressure to get it right first yeah. time because you have limited ingredients, you have limited time, and then you try something and maybe it doesn't work. And often, you know, you'll get scared to even try that again. Whereas the best chefs that we know, they're making mistakes all the time. You know, they're just trying new things and seeing if something works. And so um, I would love to see, you know, more people just having that attitude of being a little bit more carefree and making mistakes and, and having fun with food. Um, if you have the time and, you know, the resource, of course, yeah. I love that. That's really great advice. Okay, so I've got just a couple of fun questions I like to ask at the end of the interview. Are you Ooh, open to okay. that? I'm okay. very open. Yeah. What's What's one food item you can't live without? Can't live without. Um, oh, okay. Seems to be too many right now. I know. Um, yeah. Okay. I think. Well, I mean, I, I, I'll have to say two because there's like there's the herbs that I grow, right? Yes. So I'm just used to having like one of the things I really like is this thing we grow called Pluto basil. It's like a micro kind of basil. The leaves are very delicate and yeah. it's so fragrant. It's almost got a mintiness to it. I am so used to being able to just grab a few little heads of that, um, taking them home, putting them on like a simple bruschetta or something mm -hmm. like that. That is great. Um, and then yeah, maybe. I don't know. There's too many things, but I would say like a really good tomato. Um, I love, again, not the healthiest thing in the world, but I love slow roasting tomatoes for like mm. six hours in a low oven. Uh, olive oil, salt and pepper, garlic, maybe some rosemary, and then maybe some of that, or maybe some of that uh, Pluto basil. Um, mm. That just is, it's like a luxury and it's the best thing. So good tomatoes. I never want to be without. Yeah. Serve that over a bed of kale. That sounds like it would be very good. <laughs> it's very good. Very yes. good. Okay. Okay. So here's a question for you. What, if, if you could just take one band or, or singer that you would listen to the rest of your life, is there, who would that be? Oh boy. Um, I tend to go for some pretty weird out there kind of music, <laughs> so I don't know if anyone would know most of my choices. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I tend to listen sometimes. I kind of, in the UK, I got into this really sort of abstract kind of very, um, minimal ambient music. I guess the, the sort of most well-known example of that would be someone like Brian Eno, like his abstract ambient works. Brian Eno was this amazing, well, he's still around, uh, producer who 
did a lot of kind of uh, hit records in the 80s and 90s, but he also did a lot of ambient music, some of it which is computer generated. Um, And that stuff is great for like working to or just like, you know, um, chilling out. There's, it's very minimal. It's not to everyone's taste, but I, that's, that's something that, that kind of music I wouldn't want to be without. Yeah. He's got the name for creating ambient music, don't you think? Oh, <laughs> you totally. Know? I mean, actually, you know what, you know where most people have experienced him? It's the Windows 95 startup sounds and the, the alert sounds. He designed those. Did he do a TED talk? I'm sure he probably does. He's definitely the kind of guy to I do that. I think I might have thing. heard him speak somewhere then, because I, yeah. I remember hearing somebody talk about that. He's like a polymath kind of genius. Oh, the other thing I love about him is that he created these cards called Oblique Strategies. Uh-huh. Um, and I love these cards so much. They What they are is he, because he would spend a lot of time in recording studios. In recording studios, you're paying a lot of money for the time. It's a very expensive place to be. And it's a place where often you find yourself in a creative block, like you don't know what oh, to do yes. with this record. The pressure. Yeah. the pressure, right? And instinctively, we try to sort of force through those kind of situations. But actually, he sort of discovered with a painter friend of his that they used common uh, strategies and techniques to uh, get themselves out of creative blocks. And mostly those are by doing something completely different than what you instinctively want to do. And so they created this set of cards called oblique strategies. And the oblique strategies are suggestions to just try something completely random almost. Um, And so you'll just pick up a card and it might say something like, make everything bigger. Uh, And like, that's it. And you've got to figure out, okay, well, what does that mean? But looking at a creative piece, you can go like, oh, okay, I'll try that and that and that. And maybe it won't create the best thing in the world, but probably it'll get you out of your creative block. And that's why I love those things. They're sort of techniques and suggestions that I think apply to a lot of places. So Uh, I like that. That's really great. And in fact, it reminds me of something else you mentioned earlier in the interview that you have your previous business was a translation company. And so I assume that means you speak another language. Um, I speak terrible French. I speak sort of passable Japanese enough to like get me into trouble. And then people think I speak better Japanese than I do. And then they say (laughs) something really complicated. I'm I'm all all at sea, but yeah, I, I, I can, I can watch a film in French happily and I can sort of get by in Japanese. Yeah. I heard, I heard somebody say recently that learning another language uh, changes the way we think. And I just makes, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, like, you know, how much better off we would, you know, be if we all were forced to learn, you know, at least a second oh, language. Yeah. No, I'd be a big proponent of like the last year of high school should be spent in a foreign country. Like think yeah. of how much more peaceful the world would be and how yeah. much more respect we would have for different countries. Absolutely. It definitely like Japanese really, makes you think differently. I think that, for instance, um, like the way that people describe things that, that are going on in Japanese is yes. much more like, oh, the situation is this rather than I'm feeling cold or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's like, right. instead of I'm feeling cold, it's just like, oh, it is the cold around is cold. here. Yeah. And um, that it, there's various things in Japanese like that, that it, if you think about them a lot, they sort of really blow your mind. And so, yeah, definitely speaking certain other languages definitely helps you think differently. And it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I find that inspiring. Um, okay. So how can people find you online, Rob? 
Yeah, so uh, we have a website. Uh, it's farm.one, so F-A-R-M for mother, dot O-N-E. There's no dot com at the end. It's like a weirdo domain. Uh, get used to it. Um, <laughs> and then we have Instagram. That's the same thing, farm.one. Uh, and Instagram is a great place uh, to kind of look at new products that we have. And we have these beautiful plate images. They're, they're quite striking, and we're really proud of those. Um, so those are two good places. Yeah, and then Plant Gourmet, um, P-L-A-N-T-G-O-U-R-M-E-T dot com. Uh, that's where you can pick up those podcast episodes, hopefully more uh, soon to come as well. Yeah, well, Robert, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I had a really good time. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Rob Lang for being my guest on today's episode of the Namely Marley podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, just head over to the show notes page at namelymarley.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up for the Namely Marley newsletter where you'll get uh, information on our latest recipes and also uh, future podcast episodes that come available. I hope you're loving the Name of the Marley podcast. Please take a moment to head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. It really makes a big difference and helps the show get discovered by more people. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks so much for joining me. Until next time, may health and happiness come your way today. Mm-hmm.